News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bit of deja vu here to start the year 2021, sounding a lot like the beginning of 2020, as a vote to impeach President Donald Trump is expected to get underway in the House of Representatives today. Senate, though, that's another story. Let's talk to Global News Washington Bureau Chief Reggie Giacchini about what this all means one week before Inauguration Day. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so we're going ahead with impeachment, but I guess what's different this time is that there are some Republicans who are on board. Yeah, this is a bipartisan supported impeachment uh, in both the House and in the Senate. Uh, this is likely going to wind up with President Trump being impeached by the end of the day. There's just no kind of way to get around that. There's enough support between Democrats and Republicans. When you were mentioning the Senate, that's where it gets interesting. There was zero percent support uh, during the last impeachment, with the exception of Mitch uh, with Mitt Romney going uh, voting with one of the articles. This time around, Mitch McConnell backing away from the president uh, and essentially telling the caucus to vote as they will and appears to be in favor of a guilty verdict removing President Trump from office. Interesting. Does that have does that mean that there's a higher likelihood of success in the Senate this time? I wouldn't say that there's a higher likelihood. It just means that this is a more interesting approach to what we saw last time around. You know, they still need 17 Republican senators to jump on board if they want to convict the president and have him removed from office. But, you know, Mitch McConnell is the leader uh, and typically sheep will follow the shepherd. Uh, so this could be uh, an opportunity for the GOP to finally break ranks and say, you know what, we will put Constitution over the president. So yesterday we also finally saw President Donald Trump, right, because he's been keeping a very low profile. Yeah, the president's in bunker mentality right now. Uh, and what we saw yesterday was a continuation of what we've heard for the last four months, making comments about the election, making comments about what we saw happen uh, with the riots at the Capitol one week ago today. But then in a way to kind of inflame the tensions and stoke the fire, he again made kind of slamming rhetoric when he said that if they decided to use the 25th Amendment against him, it would come back to haunt the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself. And again, that was one of those questions. Is the president attempting to fire up an already angry base sitting underneath him. Yeah, that is not helping matters at all. So tell me, what is security like, Reggie, right now in the Capitol? So I'll tell you this. Uh, Right now, there are more National Guard's troops uh, situated in Washington, D.C. than there are active armed U.S. troops in the country of Afghanistan. That goes to show where they think the threat is across the United States. Number two, the National Guard is not an armed force in the United States. There are pictures of them in the Capitol right now with rifles by their side. Again, that is a huge increase in law enforcement. The DOJ is involved in security. Uh, the Supreme Court is involved in security right now. There is a serious concern that something is going to happen between now and inauguration, not even just here, but in all 50 states. Okay, so that is going to be that way then for the next week. It sounds like there's a lot of concerns about Inauguration Day. Yeah, look, this is now considered a a Secret Service special event 10 days before the inauguration, uh, and this is going to continue with this state of emergency in Washington, D.C., extending beyond inauguration. So this is something that there is a fear that something could happen before, something could happen after, and that is why we are seeing such a massive increase. Look, just to get into the Bureau today, we had to go through a uh, a National Guard police checkpoint, something we've never had to do before, and our office is three blocks away from the Capitol. Wow, and I noticed that yesterday was the first time we really saw a press conference 
as well. I know the FBI weighed in on kind of their plans and what they've been doing in their investigations. Yeah, but oddly enough, not from the acting attorney general, not from the FBI director, from kind of lower level people that are within uh, the Department of hmm. Justice. Uh, nonetheless, they said that this is going to take, uh, you know, a significant amount of time to get through. They have thousands of people that they're looking at. They've got 170 cases opened up already, but some of those charges are going to lead back to conspiracy and sedition, which goes to show how serious the situation was and how much more serious it could be for President Trump. And that is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot more videos seem to be coming out from inside the Capitol during the riots that show this wasn't just some random thing in some cases. No, some people knew where they were going. There is allegations that uh, people were getting tours in the days leading up to this uh, and that it's simply opening questions as to whether people higher up the food chain knew what was going to go on. And this is part of the reason that we're seeing a break in ranks in the Republican Party, essentially looking at President Trump as the bad luck symbol now and doing what they can to potentially remove him, fearing that this could keep them out of power for years to come. All right, Reggie, thank you. Best of luck. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent there, as you heard him say, they've never had to go through such security and checkpoints just to get into their office uh, today where the Global News office is in Washington. Uh, more bad news for President Trump this morning. New York City has announced that they are going to be terminating business contracts with the Trump Organization after last week's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, how much money is that worth? About $17 million a year. Apparently, the Trump Organization operates a couple of ice rinks, a carousel in Central Park, golf course in the Bronx. They make good money off of those. And New York City says, according to the mayor, they are severing all of those contracts with the Trump Organization. So that is millions of dollars lost for that company. Prisoners will get their vaccine, but this is about priority. I should not get a vaccine right away yeah. because of my situation. A lot of healthy people shouldn't. If you're having a plan for prioritization, you have to stick to it 100%. All right, that is Federal Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole. He was speaking to our Mike Smith right here on CKNW. As you've been hearing in the news, O'Toole is vocally opposed to prioritizing vaccines for incarcerated Canadians. Now, it is an ethical dilemma. It's also been complicated by the increase in the number of cases in our prison system as well. Almost 2,000 since December the 1st. To talk more about all of this, joining us now is Ottawa-based lawyer and co-host of the podcast the docket, Emily Tamman. Emily, thank you very much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. This issue really seems to have exploded in the last week or so. What is the situation with COVID-19 in our system, our prison system right now? It's really serious. And I mean, if COVID-19 is spreading in our prisons, it's going to be spreading in our communities as well. So, I mean, you mentioned the number of cases from December 1st, which is just close to 2,000. The total number from March to November was 1,800. So that tells you a lot about the rate of acceleration because we've had more cases since December 1st than we had in the entire period of the pandemic that preceded that date. And so what, are, well, what kind of precautions are put in place in the system to prevent that kind of spread? You know, I think it's really difficult, honestly, to get accurate information on that. We're hearing different things coming out of different institutions. But one of the really challenging things is it means a lot of solitary confinement, a lot of lockdown, you know, really exacerbating um, conditions um, in our institutions. And so there's the public health issue, um, but there's also, you know, what it means if we allow COVID to spread unchecked in our institutions in terms of you know, our ability to give effect to inmates' most fundamental human rights. Right. So what do you think then when you hear the politicians saying that this shouldn't be allowed to happen? I just think it's 
really disappointing because I think Canadians have the right to expect that these kinds of decisions are going to be made on the basis of the best evidence, um, public health advice coming from experts, and that the issue is not going to be politicized. And this is a prime example of politicizing an issue that is a public health issue that affects all of us, not just people that are incarcerated. Um, you know, and, and I think governments have an ethical and a legal obligation to take good care of the people whose liberty they take. People that are incarcerated don't have the ability to go out and seek the health care that they need on their own initiative. They don't have the capacity to um, necessarily exercise all of the recommendations in terms of physical distancing and other measures. And so they're owed a special duty to ensure that at a minimum their health is protected. And so, you know, I think it's just disappointing. We weren't talking about huge numbers. And, you know, what really, really concerned me about what Aaron O'Toole said is he tried to create a binary between so-called vulnerable people and so-called criminals. And the reality is that we know on almost every metric, including health vulnerabilities, people that are incarcerated um, are very vulnerable. And so the decision was made on the basis of expert advice that the most vulnerable incarcerated people, being those with complex medical needs and of advanced age, should be prioritized in the same way as that same category of people outside of institutions. Right. Doesn't this also support the people who work in our system, prison system? Absolutely. And those people are coming in and out of those institutions every day. So if we don't prioritize containing the spread of COVID-19 in in our penal institutions, then the people that work there, who are also very vulnerable by virtue of the nature of their work, are at higher risk of contracting COVID-19 and then bringing it out into the community. So do you think anything will change as a result of this being politicized or is everything still on track? I guess that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I think it'll depend based on the jurisdiction. It's been very interesting to see the response to Mr. O'Toole's comments, because as you would imagine, there have been a lot of people that were really, really concerned about that kind of rhetoric. But there's mm-hmm. also a lot of people that I'm seeing who are just eating it up. And that was the point of it, right, is to yeah. consolidate your base. So, you know, I'm hopeful from what I've seen up until now. Um, for the most part, it seems like these kinds of decisions are being made on the basis of the best available public health evidence. And I hope that will continue to be the case, because if we let this kind of, you know, inflammatory rhetoric start to drive our COVID-19 policy, I think we'll be in much worse shape than we already are. So what do you say then, Emily, to those people who are eating it up? I mean, I guess I would make the kinds of arguments that, you know, don't resonate with me necessarily, but that, you know, there's a couple things. First of all, huge numbers. I mean, we're talking over 85% of people in our provincial institutions haven't even had their trials yet. These are not, quote unquote, convicted criminals. So if your concern is with criminals, most people incarcerated in provincial institutions are not yet, you know, legally criminals. Um, there's also huge numbers of people with criminal records that are not incarcerated. And, you know, part of uh, Mr. O'Toole's comments where he said, no criminal, you know, that starts to beg the question, you know, will people have to provide criminal record checks when they go to get their vaccine? But I guess if I wanted to really appeal to people's own self-interest, um, I would say, you know, if we don't control the spread of COVID-19 in our um, carceral institutions, it's going to contribute to community spread. And if you're priority, like Mr. O'Toole claims his is, is to protect the most vulnerable people in the community and frontline health workers. Well, those people will be better protected if our institutions are safer. 
Okay. Do you have any confidence that that message is going to get through to people? Because all I've heard this week is the politicization of this. I mean, that's always the challenge, right? So, I mean, at the end of the day, if we can have confidence, um, you know, in the people who are actually tasked with implementing this policy, that they're not going to be impacted by Mr. O'Toole's irresponsible comments, then, you know, maybe that's good enough. Uh, I just think that people should really try to remember the basic humanity of people. And, you know, when Mr. O'Toole was elected leader that very night, and I was one of the few people who stayed up late to watch the entire thing, You know, one of the first things he said, you know, he said, I vow to be the person who is going to be a defender of human rights. And he he said that because he knows that's a vulnerability for him and his party. And, you know, human rights are universal. Uh, You know, they apply to to all people. (laughs) And um, statements like this really, really erode um, whatever confidence people may have had um, in how genuine that statement was. And so I think, you know, he should keep out of meddling with the prioritization because these issues, these decisions should be made rationally, logically, and with everyone's interests in mind. All right, Emily, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. You too. That's Emily Tammon, who's a lawyer and co-host of the Docket podcast, responding to the remarks that I'm sure a lot of you heard about Aaron O'Toole, Conservative Party leader, saying this week. You know, when I when I saw that story, I thought, you know what that is? That's just low hanging fruit. That's just trying to score a few cheap political points off this whole COVID nineteen thing. And it just, you know, listening to Emily respond to the other side of it. Makes way more sense, right? Listen to the public health officials on this one and protect the people who work in the system. That's the thing I thought of is the employees who work in that system, the prison guards, the corrections officers, all of that. They need protection from this too. And this is one of the ways they will get protected. We've been talking in the last couple of days about some survey results on how much money that we have all as Canadians been spending during this pandemic. Uh, Statistics Canada reported spending, that's retail spending in October, was up 10% over 2019. So some people are comfort spending out there for sure. So let's talk about the debt that goes along with that. Now, Sands & Associates are experts on insolvency and debt consolidation. You probably hear them advertising on CKNW all the time. Well, they've just released their 2020 debt report. Let's find out what it contains. Blair Martin joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, Cindy. All right. Well, so what kind of debt have we gotten ourselves into in 2020? And like, can you really blame people at this point because the, the things were so out of their control? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my experience helping people with debt is it's usually a combination of factors. And it's almost never just something that's completely under an individual's control. But certainly in, in the last year, you know, especially since March, it was over half of people that filed either a bankruptcy um, or a consumer proposal. And those are the legislative means of restructuring your debts. Uh, over half of people said that the pandemic was the contributing factor, the thing that put them over the edge. But in terms of the actual debt, um, it really comes down to credit cards. So of people said that the main type of debt that they were carrying that pushed them into having to do something formal to restructure was credit card debt. The next highest one was lines of credit, and that was 11%. So it's five times higher the prevalence of credit card debt that can cause a problem for individuals than any other type of debt. What happened to all that cooperation at the beginning of the pandemic that all these credit card companies were supposed to be giving to people? 
Well, they, they certainly did some, you know, pretty great things in terms of giving people breathing room. But in many ways, it just kicked the can down the road. You know, people had deferrals uh, from March until September, typically. Uh, but in many cases, the interest was still accumulating. And even if it wasn't, well, the balance wasn't reduced. It was just, you know, pushed down the road to pay later. And what we saw was actually insolvency. So bankruptcies and proposals, they hit about a 24 year low uh, in, you know, from March to December of 2020. They're starting to come back now. But the combination of creditors really taking a bit of a breather, of the courts being closed so you couldn't be sued for your debts, and then with the government doing a really good job of replacing lost income, you know, not as many people filed last year, but we're expecting that, you know, 2020 was the main year of the impact of the pandemic. Um, You know, scientifically, 2021 will be the main year of the financial impact. We expect volumes to really climb. Oh, really? Okay. So do you think this is when we're going to kind of have that reckoning? I expect so. You know, before the pandemic hit, um, there were year-over-year changes of sometimes 15 to 20% increase in consumer proposals and bankruptcies. And I don't think anybody is better off as a result of this pandemic or nobody that I can think of. So because the numbers fell, it didn't mean suddenly people solved their problems. It just meant there were bigger problems to deal with, like the pandemic and Uh some of the supports that we talked about. But I don't think people are better off. I expect the insolvency rate is really going to climb this year. What else did you find interesting in this debt report that you guys put out? Well, typically the, the range of debt, it hasn't changed since we've been doing this in about 2012. So most people, they decide they're going to restructure their debts when it's about twenty-five dollars to $50,000 of debt. So some people much higher, much lower, but that's kind of the, the sweet spot. Uh, what was interesting too, is it's not just people that have terrible credit. So upwards of 30% of people actually had good to excellent credit when they filed either a bankruptcy or a proposal. And what more people are figuring out is you can keep a perfect credit rating and you can be hopelessly indebted at the same time, you just need to make all those minimum payments. Even if you borrow to make a payment from somebody else, your credit is still good, but your overall financial health is really suffering. Um, so there were a couple insights around credit ratings and, and types of debt. Uh, one trend that we did notice that's worrying and continuing is when we started doing these studies in 2012, it was about a quarter of people were age 55 plus. Uh, last year, it was 40% of people. So the, the idea of debt in retirement, of aging with debt, that seems to be an issue that's just getting worse and worse. Any advice for people then, Blair, if they're recognizing themselves and what you're talking about here? Yeah, I think one point is just how to recognize. And the number one reason how people thought, how people figured out they had a debt problem was overwhelming stress. So it's the old adage, if you think you have a debt problem, you probably do, because just about everyone, three and four respondents were having anxiety, depression, um, even one in six people said they were considering thoughts of suicide. So, you know, if you're feeling really overwhelmed on your debt, it's time to reach out and have a free conversation with a licensed insolvency trustee. You might not need to do any filing. You might just get some good advice, but realize there's Canadian legislation that's made just for this reason to help good people um, get back on side and get rid of their debt and get on with their lives. All right, Blair, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That's Blair Martin with Sands and Associates. They've just released their 2020 debt report. And they feel like a lot of people's debt probably got put on hold in 2020, meaning 2021 is going to be troublesome for a lot of people out there. The deferrals, the payments that weren't made, all that assistance that people had in 2020, it's probably going to start to go away in 2021, meaning will we see an increase in the number of people filing for debt consolidation and bankruptcy protection? On a way in, send me at cknw.com. A lot of people make uh, New Year's resolutions, but none of them quite like our next guests. They have decided that they are going to go one year eating only what they can grow and catch. 
and they're on Pender Island, and they both join us now to talk about this. It's Chris Hall and Steph Lowy. Hey, good morning to both of you. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You guys sound very chipper. Tell me, how is this going? <laughs> uh, it's going well, yeah. It's, we're, uh, we're five and a half months in now, and uh, yeah, other than the power being out today and dealing with that, it's going really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not alone on that one. I know. Uh, Steph, tell me, how did this get started? Uh, yeah, so we were both kind of out of work due to the pandemic and um, found ourselves with a lot of extra time on our hands. And it's always been something that we've been interested in, this uh, way of clean eating and kind of going back to what our ancestors did. So <clears throat> I think the pandemic kind of threw it into high gear for us, but it's always been something we've been quite interested in. All right. So, Chris, what are the rules here? How does this work? Uh, the, the rules are, are pretty strict. It's basically uh, we don't eat or, con- or drink or consume anything that we kind of haven't harvested or off the land or grown or, or sort of chickens or eggs that we've raised. So um, it's everything right down to harvesting salt from the ocean and growing stevia as a sugar substitute and making milk from hazelnuts and making our own nut milk. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty intense. Wow, that is pretty intense. Uh, Chris, t- how hard was it in the beginning to do this? Yeah, beginning was definitely the hardest part. Uh, the first three weeks was definitely a bit of a shock to the system. I think, you know, a lot of people make kind of one resolution and go, okay, I'll stop drinking for a month or, or I'll cut out sugar for a little bit. So to cut out sugar, caffeine, alcohol all in the same day was uh, took a bit of adjusting to the body for sure. Oh, I'll bet. Steph, <laughs> what is, um, Steph, tell me, what is the average day like? Like, give me an idea of what breakfast, lunch, and dinner is. Yeah, so um, usually hard-boiled eggs. Uh, sometimes we throw in a smoothie with the uh, frozen berries we have from the summertime. Um, and then lunch is usually a soup that we've done, like a turkey or a chicken soup. And then for dinner, chicken and potatoes. <laughs> so pretty straightforward. But how much are you yeah. guys growing there on the land? Like, you must be doing a lot of gardening. Yeah, and I think we're super lucky to kind of be where we are on, on southern Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands. Um, we're actually in kind of a sub-Mediterranean growing zone, so we kind of planned out our winter garden, and we're still growing beets and carrots and kale and Swiss chard, and um, all that's kind of still growing in our garden at the moment. But um, quite a mix. Mushrooms are doing well right now, so we're growing mushrooms, and of course have frozen and uh, dehydrated a bunch of things to get us through the winter too. Amazing. Steph, well, how much of a learning curve was this? Oh, it's such a learning curve like I've learned so many new skills and so many new ways of doing things that it's been um, a little bit overwhelming but super exciting at the same time and Chris you go fishing too is that right we do yeah so I think you know sometimes it sounds bland and people go oh they must be eating nothing but vegetables and the odd chicken and things like that but if kind of people follow along on our Facebook page and they see us having crab for dinner one night and then prawns and salmon the next and chicken and turkey they go oh that doesn't look so bad what they're eating right but I guess what I'm thinking is that like finding what to eat and what you're going to eat these are the full-time jobs that you have now right uh, when we first started, yeah. So for the first couple of months of the pandemic, we were both out of work. Um, we've both gone back to different jobs now and are sort of working as well. So um, it took a lot of time to get set up for sure. But uh, now that we're both back working, we're able to manage it with jobs as well. Okay, come on. You guys must have lost weight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think people were worried at first that we weren't eating and we were going to starve to death out here. Cause, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I dropped about 40 pounds in, in the first three months. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Steph, how about you? Uh, I dropped down 30 pounds. 
Okay. And I understand that you've yeah. been checked out by doctors. You're having the health checkup, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. We have um, our second checkup on the 3rd of February, which will be our six month mark. Um, so we're kind of looking forward to that, make sure we're still doing well. We feel really great. So we're not worried or anything, but uh, just get that confirmation from Good. the doctor. Yeah. But it's okay. So you committed to doing this for a year. Are you going to stay on it, or at this point you're counting down the days on the calendar? I think I, I think both. Yeah. <laughs> we're uh, we, we're really enjoying it. I think we'll continue with uh, with a lot of the things we're doing and continue with this lifestyle. But I think uh, we're definitely looking forward to a couple coffees and a slice of pizza and a bunch of different things like that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, Steph. What is the one thing that you want to eat when your year is up? <laughs> Oh, pizza for sure. <laughs> pizza sounds like Chris. Yeah. Same for you, pizza. Uh, mine's the coffee. I've always been a big coffee drinker, so that's been my my hardest <laughs> thing for sure. I thought it'd be be alcohol and and tempted to drink and things like that, but coffee's definitely been the hardest thing. It, do you guys have to not talk about that? Do you have to not like you know in a quiet moment talk about oh I really miss this because I can imagine that would be a bit of a downward spiral. Um, sometimes it's like, we'll go back and forth about like what we, what we wish we were eating or sometimes one of us will say it and the other person will look at the other one like, don't, don't bring it up right now. (laughs) Don't go there. Don't do it. Um, okay. So any advice then for people who think, okay, you know, maybe they would like to do a little of this, Chris, where should people start? Yeah, I think for most people, you know, reality is probably better to do baby steps. We kind of obviously jumped in and are going to a bit of the extreme, but, uh, and it's an exciting thing to do. You know, if you can, even if you're in an apartment, start growing, you know, a tomato plant on your garden this year or grow some vegetables and, and start learning new things to, to see if you can start providing some of your own food for yourself. Yeah, Steph, any advice? Um, yeah, take it, take it in small steps. <laughs> do a little <laughs> bit of research and find out uh, what interests you most and start with that and see see how it goes. Or jump full into it. <laughs> <laughs> like what you guys did. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. And listen, best of luck. Thank you Thank so you. much. That is Chris Hall and Steph Lowy. They are for one year. They are not eating anything that they haven't grown or caught themselves. They're even harvesting salt from the ocean to use for their food, which is amazing. Good on them. They're about five months into it. They still have a ways to go. It's been one of the most frustrating things in this second wave of the pandemic, watching places or people that flout the regulations, especially some churches. A handful of them have been pretty public, I would say, in continuing to hold in-person services. They've been fined, but even those fines are starting to add up. So what is the, what are the, what are the repercussions, essentially, of not following the rules and putting the community at risk? Well, a council member in the township of Langley has an idea about that, hopefully to incentivize some of these churches to do the right thing. Kim Richter is also an instructor at KPU. She joins us now to talk more about this solution that she's proposing. Kim, thank you for being here. Well, good morning, Simi. Thank you for the invitation. Well, how much of a concern has this been in Langley? Quite a concern, actually. Last week, we had uh, 23 uh, churches uh, post a letter saying uh, in the newspaper saying how much they do support the uh, public health orders and uh, how they're abiding by it. So it has been a, a source of concern in our community, certainly. So you know that there are churches in the township of Langley that are continuing to hold in-person services? Uh, 
well, there's one for sure that I know about. Okay, and so they've been fine. So what do you do then, Kim? What's your idea? Well, this is where my motion that I put before council on Monday comes into play. There's not a whole lot that we can do really at the municipal level, but one of the things that we do do at the municipal level is we provide what's called a permissive tax exemption uh, to organizations, uh, charitable organizations. Most of them are churches. And this is for the properties and the parking lots surrounding the churches themselves. And that's entirely up to council's discretion. Uh, This is not something that every community does. A lot of communities do do it. We do it. We've done it as long as I've been on council. And it's an additional grant to uh, 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 charitable organizations uh, to help with their property taxes. So, in effect, what happens is they apply for this. Uh, It comes before council. Council passes a bylaw uh, each year, and that bylaw grants them or makes them a grant in effect that uh, amounts to a certain amount of money. And then the rest of the taxpayers have to cough up that money in the taxes that they pay because, of course, we still have to generate the taxes. So it just means a a greater load on residential taxes, as an example. So it's a tax break, essentially. Yeah, it is. Okay, so your proposal is to say, hey, listen, if you're not going to abide by the law, we're going to take away your tax break. Pretty much. Interesting. So how? what kind of reaction have you gotten to this? Um, it actually, yesterday was the first day, really, that reaction was coming through. And I've been surprised at the number of Twitters and emails that are coming through to me that are very, very supportive. I've only had one negative one. Really? So yeah. what about your fellow councillors? Um, they seem to like the idea. They were concerned when we first discussed it on Monday with regards to the language. They don't want to get embroiled in any sort of a charter challenge, and I certainly concur with them, although I don't see this as charter challenge material in the least. This is simply about right. whether or not you get a tax break. Uh, so we've sent it back to staff to have staff review the uh, precise language in the motion uh, with uh, for legal um, considerations and ramifications. So hopefully the motion will be returning to council at our next meeting on January 25th, and okay. it will pass then. So what would the requirements be then? Do they have to prove <clears throat> that they have paid the fine, or have they proved that they haven't got a fine? How does that work? Well, when they make application uh, for their, uh, well, the next bylaw that will be coming before us is for the 2022 year. The 21 year is, is 2021 is already done. Um, they would have to uh, confirm that they have not been cited for noncompliance of orders issued by the public health officer and uh, also confirm that they have not been fined under such order or enactment. And so when they're doing their application, they just basically have to say, no, we haven't been fined. And then that information comes forward to council to deliberate deliberate, uh, with the 2022 bylaw. And uh, so that's the mechanism. Mm -hmm. And at that point, council will make the decision whether or not uh, to grant them the permissive tax exemption. Um, certainly the church in question, I would have difficulty giving them another tax exemption because of the risk that they've put our community at uh, just by virtue of their willful behaviors. 
Yeah, how frustrating is that, especially for counselors, to have this going on in your community? It must feel like you must feel a bit powerless with this. Yeah, it's very frustrating, and it's frustrating on an individual level as as well as on a, a counselor level because, you know, the vast majority of people in a community are doing the right thing. And yeah. then we have this group of individuals who feel that they're above the law. Well, no, you you don't have the right to make my family, my friends, my community sick. You don't have that right. And the public health officer is putting the orders in place to protect the community from getting sick. So no more public trough. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, if you're not going to abide by the rules, then you shouldn't be getting a handout of public monies. Sounds pretty simple. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Shimmy. I really appreciate it. Well, best of luck. That's Kim Richter. She's a counselor with the Township of Langley, also a KPU instructor. They have had some challenges with, as we know, churches, some of them out in the Fraser Valley, that have been flouting the regulations on holding in-person services. They're still continuing to do it. One in particular, she said, in their community in the Township of Langley. So her proposal is... No more tax breaks. No more municipal tax breaks helping you out with lowering your property taxes if this is what you're going to do. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.